It got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore, and I looked up to see who was invading my space. In the aisle next to me, I could see a pair of eyes staring at me between the book stacks. I immediately recognized those eyes and the splatters of blood around them. It was the man in the leather jacket. I froze. I couldn't get up and run away. The only thing I could do was try to wheel away as fast as I could, but my arms refused to move. It was like I lost control of my body. There was nothing more terrifying in that moment than wanting to run away, but my body and mind weren't cooperating. Eventually, I was able to snap out of it, and I wheeled myself down the aisle. I could see the man in the leather jacket moving with me, keeping up with my pace. I took a sharp left because I didn't want to run into the man again. I took another sharp right and headed towards the elevator. I wheeled myself so fast into the elevator that my wheelchair hit the wall with a hard thud. I pressed the elevator buttons as quickly as I could. The man in the leather jacket turned his head to the side and looked at me. For the first time since the accident, he smiled. He turned the rest of his body to face me and started charging towards the elevator where I was. I hit the door close button repeatedly as the door moved slower than molasses. Just as the man was about to cross the doorway, the elevator doors shut. I breathed a sigh of relief, which only lasted a moment. I felt a presence again and turned to my right, and there he was, standing next to me. My ghoulies and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name's Jay, and I am joined by the haunted duo, Nick and Rory. (laughs) Oh no, they died. (laughs) (laughs) On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. And we're back. Yes, we are back in... The basement, as Nick says. Yeah, as I would say, had I not passed away. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, but, you know, it's okay. We'll take care, Kelsey. Just weekend at Bernie's my corpse through the rest of this podcast. You can just, like, kick me in the stomach to force some gases out to get me to talk. You're talking right now. Why do I need to do that to your corpse? Oh, I meant to tell you, you are dangerously insane and you need to take your meds. Well, yes, to most of those things. So, hey guys, how's it going? Uh, it's going. It's hot. It's so freaking hot. Yeah, I'm not going to complain about it because I'd rather it be hot than cold. Uh, Same. Well, you both can enjoy hell. I, for one, am... Uh, actually, I guess I'm going to hell too. I'm just going to the bottom level where it's frozen. I'm sorry, I just... I, it being cold all the time... Like, I'm literally never not cold that when I walk outside and it's hot, I'm just grateful. 
Yeah. Because I am perpetually cold and it's not like a little cold. I am in, I'm cold. I'm so cold that I'm in pain. Whereas I feel like I'm a roasted potato. Nick, this house, this house makes our hands lock up and it makes it difficult for the two of us to type because it's cold. Yep. That's why I can't stay down here for very long. This, this house is too warm to me. You keep it at 55 degrees, you lunatic. I want to live in an icebox. That 55 is absolutely insane. And also, no, it's not. It's at 68 right now. So what do you guys think of the book? Oh, uh, right. We had a book we were talking about. Yes. Um, it's a good one, too. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, very enjoyable. I thought that uh, Alex Matsuo, I thought she has a very, again, a very conversational kind of uh, writing style. Uh and also, this is the first book that we've read that made me break out into cold sweats and made me genuinely lose some sleep. But that's partially due to the very vivid descriptions of what it's like to go through a trauma center and being stitched up in the hospital and the recovery experience. And well, all that's a bit too familiar to me. And uh, mm -hmm. the way Fair. she painted that picture, uh, it, it definitely brought back those memories uh, very heavily. So. Yeah, I, I think probably I got more out of this book because of my personal history than I would have um, otherwise. But that said, I thought it was an, a spooky little story and it had some really chilling moments like uh, that piece that you read for the cold open there. Uh, yes. the, the chase through the library. That was a very memorable scene from the book. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the book was I, don't, I thought it was really good. It was really enjoyable. I'm um, to the point where I finished it in essentially three sittings, which is pretty good for me. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I just kept going, you know, I would, I would look at like, cause I read a lot on my lunch break and I would look at the clock and then I would look at the chapter and I go, I got 10 minutes. I can finish this chapter in 10 minutes. And then I would just keep going. Normally at that point, I would just put it down and, and do something else. But I just kept reading all the way through. It was very good. Well, yeah. and, and that, on that, I guess to the author's credit, uh, she was very good about knowing when to break a chapter and how to hook into the next chapter. And that it was it, it is one of those books where you have you struggle to find a good stopping point. Yeah, because it, the, the hits just kind of keep on coming. And yeah. also she has a talent for ending a chapter on a note that make compels you to keep going. Yeah. 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 No, I always I was I was always very like, well, I want to know what happens next. Yeah. Uh, no, but on the whole, I, I enjoyed it. I think the the big the only real complaint I have about the book is I noticed a couple of typos. Yeah. yeah. Like the man in the letter jacket yep. completely threw me because now I imagine she was being chased by the varsity team. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was that was really my only the only thing I saw too, and that would that's really being it's being super petty. There was some misuses of the of the Oxford comma, but I mean, really, who gives a shit? I do. I mean, most people. I don't want to say most people. A lot of people have just gone away with the Oxford comma. So let's eat, Grandma. I, we went away with two two spaces after a period. It's that was because of typewriters. I'm just saying, people brought it over to the computers and they still did it for fucking ever until recently. Really. For the record, there are still people who are diehard double space after a yep. period people. I work with people like that. I think my mother is like that and it's one of the many reasons I think we should put her in a home. No, see, I get it because when you're typing, you got a rhythm going. There's a certain sound to your, your specific typing and maybe they just like that double beat. Clack, clack. Clickety clack. Yeah. Clack. Yeah. You maybe. missed the second clack. 
but either way that the either way when you're looking when we have when we're looking for quote unquote complaints and the only thing we can do is talk about uh grammar and it's really just super petty shit like i think uh the book is top notch at that point oh yeah. oh yes no i am being a petty little bastard right now <laughs> are we so are we ready to get into this i am if y'all are show us the way all right <laughs> Our book this week was penned by Alex Matsuo, a paranormal investigator and self-proclaimed skeptical believer. As with most of the people in our sphere, she is frequently asked why she founded her investigation team and why she specializes in residential cases. Residential cases, a.k.a. hauntings involving someone's home, are intimate. Alex says it means joining a new family for a while. The answer to both questions is found in this book. Fifteen years prior to writing it, Alex herself was tormented by a ghost who followed her home after a nearly fatal car accident. She kept silent about the ordeal for many years until she appeared on an episode of Haunted Hospitals. The experience of filming the show was actually quite healing for her and helped her find the strength to tell the story in its entirety. Again, like most people in our world, Alex's interest in the paranormal predated her traumatic experience. While always fascinated by the spookier parts of life, her religious family, particularly her mother, forbade it. While pregnant with Alex, her mother dabbled with the occult. Her forays into tarot, use of pendulums, and experiments with dowsing rods may sound fairly tame to us. To her, however, it was the groundwork for what Alex would endure later, a fact that her mother's diaries would only reveal after her death. While her mother was still alive, Alex and her friends casually joked about fetal Alex being a bad influence on her mom and drawing her to the dark side. Willful from the start, Alex bucked these rules and sought out her horror and supernatural fix wherever she could get it. Perhaps she was trying to cope with more concrete struggles. Alex had been mute for the first few years of her life and had a speech impediment when she could talk. She was self-harming by the age of four and her mother was unstable, at times flat-out abusive. Alex's closest relatives were her grandparents. She and her grandfather had a unique connection. He too struggled with speech, and it was said that they seemed to converse without words at times, which may explain why six-year-old Alex was able to announce his death before the hospital ever called with the news. And that wasn't her only childhood brush with the supernatural. On her great-grandmother's property, many strange things occurred around Alex. She saw a weird footprint in the mud. She compares it to one seen on the show Hellier decades later. Sometimes at night, she'd hear people, or something, coming out of the woods to wander outside the house. Now and then, they'd bang on the door. Her great-grandmother said it was the devil trying to get in. Gee, thanks, Meemaw. <laughs> hey, maybe it was. <laughs> or she's like, yes, yes, that's Matthew, the devil smith. He's a former pro wrestler. He comes around here asking for moonshine. I mean, that'd be awesome, but I don't, I don't think that's what she meant. <laughs> no. no. She meant the devil. During a bad storm one night, Alex saw a hooded figure on a hill outside and couldn't make out its face. With every lightning flash, it moved closer to the house until a terrified Alex closed the curtains. After she did, her mattress abruptly tipped like it would if someone sat on one side of it, and Alex slid right to the floor. This event is the one she pinpoints as the true origin of her obsession, but it was not the last one of her childhood. Once, she found herself drawn to a guest room in her mother's home, and while lying down in one of its beds, was smacked in the forehead by an invisible force. The night after her grandmother died, the staircase light was turned off by seemingly no one. Alex constantly left it on at night, and in life, her grandmother frequently had to get out of bed to switch it off. 
Alex took this as a message. Harder to interpret is the ghostly ballerina she glimpsed backstage at one of her first live theater performances. The theater was rumored to be haunted by a young starlet who was tripped by a jealous rival and died from her injuries. Alex isn't sure that's who she saw, but the dancer looked her right in the eye before vanishing into thin air. And as we close out Alex's childhood, we're going to jump into our first discussion question, almost right off the bat. I, for one, am highly entertained by the implication of unborn baby Alex dragging her Christian mommy into the occult. So entertained, in fact, that I want to talk about it for a minute. In your wild speculation, could Alex have reached through time and space to nudge her mother towards the spooky? And regardless, was that really the foundation of Alex's later experiences? Um, I mean, sure, why not? Uh, that <laughs> I mean, again, we go back to we don't know, but uh, I mean, I I I think I could uh, I could see an argument being made that the if. <laughs> That the child, while still in womb, may have, you know, some sort of an effect upon the mother and uh, her behavior. I mean, we see women who have uh, intense cravings, as uh, my wife likes to ask. Uh, If she demanded it, would I get her pickle ice cream or something like that? And the answer is, of course, because I don't want her to kill me. Uh, But beyond that, I mean, you know, we, we know so we know that the mother can be affected in that relationship in her decision making. Uh, who knows? Maybe it can go the other way. We don't really fully know what gets transmitted to the child, especially if we're talking about uh, things like telepathy or extrasensory abilities, because, again, go back to twin telepathy. Uh, the closer the connection, the stronger the chance that telepathy occurs. Well, I mean, <laughs> when you're sharing a body, you know, that that's a, that's a pretty intimate connection. And so I could very easily see it be the, even on a subconscious level, there being some sort of an exchange. Uh, granted, then you get into some topics which I'm not that well read on, uh, such as pregnancy, but also, uh, you know, things like ancestral memory, uh, genet- ideas of genetic memory, things like that. I mean, not to say dabbling with the occult changes your genetics, but, uh, you know, maybe there is some sort of spiritual thing along those lines. Or maybe another, I guess, possibility I could see being she dabbled in it and then that because of the whatever experiences she had then, plus her own religious beliefs, she raised Alex in an environment where it was normal to believe in invisible things and things that go bump in the night. I mean, think about the fact that Alex is raised around a, a, a great grandmother who accuses Knox in the night of being literally Satan. Uh, and then we have how hyper religious her mother is. I mean, I could easily see an argument being made that the environment she was raised in tends to lead people to that. I mean, that's obviously not ubiquitous, but I know plenty of people who got into macabre and grisly stuff primarily because they grew up in a restrictive religious household. Especially if you, I mean, you really think about it, especially when you get in your teen years, uh, like think Christianity, the Bible's freaking hardcore. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of spooky, yeah. macabre, uh, weird, arcane stuff that happens there, not to mention brutally violent. Yeah, King Saul consults a necromancer to learn about the future. That's what the Witch of Endor is. Yeah, so, I mean, again, I go back to, uh, it shouldn't be a shock that your kids get into D- that you know, go back to Satanic Panic. It shouldn't be a shock that their kids got into D&D given the main book they were told to guide their life by. Yeah. Sorry, I know I just went off a tangent there, but... No, it's relevant. So, again, either, sure, psychic <laughs> baby wooge, or, sure, it was likely the environment she was raised in. I mean... 
sure is, I think, the, the right response here, right? Because uh, uh, ultimately, we don't know. We have no way of knowing. It's all speculation. But that being said, I got kind of a uh, weird, like, I don't know. I, it could have just been like uh, not knowing like the full timeline of everything. But like throughout the book, Alex talked about how like, uh, like, how rooted in Christianity her mother was, like how rooted in her faith she was, but also said things like her mother is a Reiki, a Reiki, Reiki master. Right. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. That's not, I mean, that takes time to become a, a, a Reiki. I have no idea how to properly pronounce that word. Reiki? Reiki? I, I don't I know. I think it's Reiki, yeah. yeah. I think Reiki? It just sounds like a Pokemon. It's Japanese. And it's like, so that part, all, that kind of like throws me for a loop, right? Because that's not a Christian thing. It's Japanese. Well, know? it's it's also very much embedded in the New Age uh, kind a, of it's community. It's a chakra thing. Yeah. You know, it, so, like, if her mom is all, all seemed to at least tangentially be interested in the mystical side of things, maybe before her, but definitely during that same time, you know, and always seemed to be more... Um, like willing to accept that something was supernatural in nature, and like I, I can't, I don't, I don't think that I, I can't say with any kind of certainty that that's any kind that that's Alex's influence. If anything, I would say it's the other way around. Uh, Alex just had more of an open mind than her mom, and so it wasn't like a I'm doing. I'm a Christian and I chose to, you know, I chose to learn Reiki because it's also interesting to her or whatever, where Alex was like, no, nah, you know, I'm going to look much bigger at a much larger picture of the phenomenon in general. So maybe, could be, big if true. Big if true. But like, ultimately, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think if anything, it's her mother having even tangential interest in the supernatural, but almost locking it down and saying, you know, this is, you know, it's only my, you know, the Christian faith plus whatever else I deem acceptable uh, is what helped sprout Alex's uh, more wide uh, interest in the supernatural. Well, it goes back to a conversation we had uh, during the Satanic Panic episode, the, where, once you uh, make something taboo, you make it irresistible yeah, to, no, to a kid. So, I mean, because, again, I, I know that was certainly true for me regarding some more extreme horror. That, uh, that was just, it's like how I lived my life. Yeah. I mean, just run whatever as like opposite direction your parents are pointing. Yeah. The other thing that intrigued me is like throughout the book, Alex makes references to her mother's diaries that she found after her mother passed away. And, like, according to those, Alex's mother was worried that the things that she did during the pregnancy with the pendulums and the tarot and the dowsing rods, she, she was apparently fearful that Alex's experiences with the man in the leather jacket and with ghosts in general were caused by that. I'm also pretty skeptical about that just because I've never heard of dowsing rods of all things being able to fuck up someone's energy that badly. That sounds more like a fundamental misunderstanding of the use of divination tools. Yeah. Because 
That's not how divination tools work. Yeah, and that's the thing. is they, Those were all divination tools that she was describing, and she wasn't even, like, fucking around with an Ouija board. It was it was pendulums. Right, and, and yeah, pendulums and dowsing rods, which are, like, the basic of the basic, you yeah. know, when it comes to uh, different divination tools. Dowsing rods aren't even technically supposed to be used for the future. Uh, they're supposed to find water. Yep, yep. I mean, and pendulums are, depending on who you talk to, not even really a divinatory tool. It's supposed to help you learn your mind. Because, I mean, granted, I've also heard it go the other way. I've, yeah. I've only ever seen them used as divination tools. See, the argument... they come... You're supposed to buy them with that... Not supposed to, but most people use a yes-no mat with them. Yeah, I know. I've also seen people using it where he goes off the argument that no matter how how uh, steady you try to hold your hand, you will subconsciously influence the way the pendulum is swinging, and so it's a way of, I guess, like ink blotting yourself. That's the point. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, I... You, you're saying the same thing. Yes. I suppose. I mean, that's also just the way that I treat the majority of divination. I feel like that's largely the most responsible way should approach divination is most of this, if not all of it, comes from inside me. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really know. I've never gotten too deep into uh, into divination myself outside of way back in college. I had uh, I had some pendulums and I had some tarot. But honestly, again, like uh, like we were saying, I, I mostly saw it as an inkblot test. Um, but you know, there could be people out there who are who genuinely do hold the belief that it is commun- some form of communion with a larger presence or force that is giving them knowledge. And uh, I don't know if that's true. I Maybe. I mean, if they believe that and that higher thing is just them connecting to some kind of, you know, deity or spiritual connection to the world and they're gaining responses um, and it's working then yeah, that's probably true. And I mean, looking at it as like an inkblot test where you're trying to guide it from your subconscious, may it, you know, you're putting yourself theoretically into a trance-like state to do that and you're meditating, um, you're doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, it comes down to, it comes down to the actual reality behind it is the, the, the actual metaphysics, which is the one part that we, can't look at or verify at all yeah yeah we exactly yeah and so uh, like i said we're essentially just saying two different versions of the same thing one is just whether or not it's just whether or not you accept it as potentially being metaphysical and supernatural or supernatural or if you just think it's your own brain tricking you yeah but that also could just be the same thing yeah yeah okay we all agree (laughs) all right The real story of One Bed Over begins in Alex's sophomore year of college. At that time, Alex was at a low point in her life. She was recovering from an abusive relationship with an on-again, off-again ex, we'll call him Mike, who had more or less destroyed her self-esteem. In addition to repeatedly gaslighting and emotionally abusing her, Mike was a serial cheater. After breaking up with her, he lied to several subsequent girlfriends, claiming Alex was stalking him and encouraging them to harass her. Her grades plummeted, and she was likely going to have to repeat classes for the first time ever. All this left Alex emotionally raw and vulnerable. Despite seeking support in her current theater groups, she was, in her own words, still seeking validation from Mike. On New Year's Eve, at the end of her fall semester, Alex found herself being drawn back into his bullshit circus. 
At the last minute, Mike called Alex and invited her to a New Year's party. Is a friend, since both their current significant others were out of town. Still hurting and still emotionally invested, Alex chose to cancel plans with her current boyfriend and theater friends in favor of Mike. Excited and giddy at the possibility of being friendly with him again, Alex got dressed up and waited in her dorm for Mike to call or text. Hours passed and it started to rain. Finally, she called him, and when he picked up, he proceeded to verbally berate her, saying he no longer wanted her around, that she was annoying, that his earlier invitation had been out of boredom. At her breaking point, Alex dissolved into tears. Ashamed of herself, she begged him to tell her why he was being so cruel. Mike, in response, said, your tears don't matter to me. Alex hung up, eviscerated, and called the other party's host. Her friend assured her she could still come, but Alex felt even worse. Between Mike and her mother, she didn't think she deserved any better than what she was getting. The party was only a 20-minute drive away, but the rain was pouring by now. Even through her wipers, she could barely see the freeway. Distracted by heartbreak, shame, and rage, Alex was having trouble driving safely. She didn't even register that the car was hydroplaning until she lost control. The car slid and spun and fishtailed, hitting both guardrails before coming to a stop. In shock, but unhurt, Alex sat in the driver's seat until a knock at her window roused her. Outside, a girl her age had stopped to check on her and reassured her that everything was all right as Alex got out. An older man stopped as well and volunteered to direct traffic away from the crash. Alex stared at her damaged vehicle, which was in no condition to drive, as the rain eased up. Faced with the reality of telling her harsh mother about the wreck, she started to cry again, overwhelmed by the stressful semester she was having. Realizing her theater supplies needed to be taken out of the car, Alex approached it, only to hear the man shout a warning. Headlights, a bumper against her leg, put under her body, weightlessness. And then she was over the guardrail and plummeting towards the road below it. The only thing she could think before the second impact was, oh shit. I know that moment. Yeah. It sucks. Uh, that, for me, that was the moment that I opened my eyes from dozing in the back seat uh, to see the van begin to tip around me. Yep. And, and that it was kind of the realization that I'm about to go for the worst ride of my life and there is nothing I can do about it. Yep. So I, I, uh, I actually had to put the book down at that point. I, uh, I'm not surprised, and I'm sorry that this next chunk of the summary is going to be so rough for you. It's okay. I'll just be over here slowly driving a blade into my leg to stop from screaming. Give me the knife. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Down below, Alex miraculously didn't land on her head. Instead, her hip took the brunt of the impact. The pain didn't set in right away, which is a bad sign. Frantically, Alex wiggled her toes. To her relief, they moved, meaning she wasn't paralyzed. And then her mouth filled with blood and her body filled with agony. Screaming for help, Alex drew the attention of four older women who had evidently emerged from a diner on the road. She couldn't see their faces as she was unable to lift her head, but they spoke gently and tried to soothe her. They asked her a few basic questions to check on her brain. Name, date, and what had happened. They got her mother's phone number, and one called while the, others lay, while the others laid their hands on her and began to pray. Strangely enough, their touch didn't hurt. Alex felt warmth instead and was comforted. Her pain even seemed to ease. Their presence kept her sane and calm until the EMTs arrived, and then the horror began again. After assessing her condition, they flipped her onto her back and onto a stretcher. The pain returned all at once. 
Half mad from the agony, Alex screamed, spooking the crowd that had filed out from the diner. Overhearing someone tell the EMTs that she was intoxicated, Alex denied it in between shrieks. Overhead, she saw the lying bitch, I'm sorry, the other driver who had hit her, standing on the overpass and crying her big, dumb crocodile tears. Hey, the listeners don't know why she's a lying bitch yet. They'll find out. (laughs) I'm from the future. As she was loaded into the ambulance, her mother arrived, though Alex's injuries prevented them from actually seeing each other. They shouted, I love you, back and forth, and her mother promised to follow the ambulance. The ride to the hospital was hellish. Even years later, Alex has vivid memories of the monitors, how they looked, how they sounded, how the EMTs checked and rechecked them, even as the rest of the ride was fuzzed away by time and trauma. Alex started to slip away, and the EMTs urged the driver to go faster, the increased speed causing additional torture to her shattered body. Finally, they arrived at the trauma center, and the chaos doubled. Alex lay limp on the gurney as the trauma team whirled around her. Desperate to keep her with them, they asked dozens of questions about school, her family, her life. Once again, she was moved from one bed to another and plunged into a brand new world of pain. Through the misery and shock, she saw glimpses of her mother and her friends anxiously trying to see what was happening from the doorway. She wasn't sure if they were real. She was clearly dying. Maybe these were just dreams. Through her bloody mouth, she asked if she was going to die. Not tonight, was the answer. Alex was making it to morning, yes, but someone else wasn't. From the next bed, Alex heard screaming. Screaming that wasn't coming from her was attention-getting, and she managed to look over. There was a man in the next bed, his own trauma team around him, trying to put his destroyed body back together. He was covered in blood, and when a nurse saw Alex looking, a divider was put up between them. It was essentially a frosted curtain, smudging the image into something indecipherable, meaning that all Alex could see was red. She turned her head back to the ceiling. Then she was outside of her body, floating overhead, looking down at herself in her hospital gown and oxygen mask. Still not fully processing this insane development, Alex floated from the trauma room and into the hallway. Outside, she found her mother and many of the friends she'd glimpsed earlier, sitting in the waiting room, weeping and praying. Just like back on the gurney, Alex was in the midst of something she was held back from being a part of. With no warning, she was back in the trauma room, at the foot of her own bed. Quote, I felt like an observer, like I was standing in the middle of a scene from a TV show. I wanted the show to be over, regardless of what the ending was going to be. But she wasn't the only member of this dead studio audience. Standing beside the next bed was the screaming man, his body intact, dressed in his leather jacket and pants. Like Alex, he was watching his own physical body as the trauma team fought to keep him alive. The two of them locked eyes, and Alex's heart broke for him. Quote, His eyes were full of desperation and fear. He turned away from me, and I could see the horror on his face as he watched the writhing body on the table. The out-of-body experience ended, and Alex blacked out. I'd be curious to know if at that point, when she, when the uh, out-of-body experience ended and she blacked out, if they had like put her under, under any kind of general anesthesia or anything uh, like they that. They wouldn't have. She'd have died. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, that was, at least that's, what was told to me in the trauma center was that because they I remember they gave me Tylenol three 
I believe, which was the only medication I got from 10 a.m. when the accident happened to 11 p.m. because there was a big fear of going into shock. Because apparently opioids can cause, uh, well, you can go to fatal shock. And if you're already in shock, it can, well, just kill you. Yeah, well, and because most of them thin out your blood and it does a whole bunch of stuff that can that can cause damage. But that's not the same as anesthesia. Oh, it's true. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know under what, I don't know under what conditions they might put someone in the trauma center under anesthesia. Yeah, no, I, I was just curious. Be, I, I, I was curious because I'd be curious to see if there was any connection to the out-of-body experience ending and then anything that they were doing. I mean, I, I am too, because it just seems, because it, it, you're right, it's like, why then? Yeah, it seems so abrupt, you know? Yeah, and like her her going, I'm I'm even curious if like some, if they did something at the moment when she was out, like when she stepped out of her body, mm-hmm. or like if, like, I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, it's yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, because this is a case that is obviously a little different from the NDEs we've read about. You know, there is no vision of dead relatives. There's no great big tunnel. It was, you know, again, it, it sounds much more like an astral travel out of body experience. So the question is, I guess, how under what situation are you forced out of your body versus experiencing an NDE? Yeah, well, and there's and there is differences between out of body experiences and near death experiences, but I guess in this situation, because like with near death experiences, there's been a ton that have happened when you're still under like general anesthesia when they're in the surgeries and stuff like that, but not I haven't heard that many out of body experiences like that which is why I was curious to see if maybe they'd put her under some kind of anesthesia because maybe then for whatever reason because it shuts down so much of you right yeah. with the anesthesia that maybe that forced closed whatever part of her was uh, a- allowing that out of body experience to happen whatever psychic energy was hap- was was going on you know well, I mean it's interesting. It's it's a little horrifying because I wonder if that would mean that anytime any of us undergo surgery, we are actually forced out of body, but we just don't have memory of that afterwards. Could be. I'd be so mad because I've been trying to get out of my body like without the use of anesthesia. And uh, if that's all it took, I mean, uh, granted, where the hell would I get anesthesia? Uh, a hospital and you would steal it. I don't know how to dose myself. I would die. Yes, no, immediately. Yeah, yeah. Baby, you made me think of something. It's like, remember back in twin telepathy when I'm pretty sure it was was either twin telepathy or fringology. I think we were reading about how it now looks like anesthesia, like, stills the things in our microtubules. Yeah, fringology. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, too, was the microtubules. Yeah, that it's like if... Because that's what they think might be the, that's what Penrose and the guy, the anesthesiologist whose name I'm forgetting. Huh. From that was the chapter in Fringology is actually about him, not about Penrose, but nonetheless, here yeah. we are. Um, I, that, that's what made me think about it because they think, or his, their going theory is that the microtubules might be like the connector or the piece of us that allow, like that, that holds or connects to consciousness in some way. Which is what made me think about that. Okay, yeah. I was just trying to see if in my head I could find a way of like making the microtubules allegorical to a spine. 
because I would bring in the whole that's where the, the souls attached to the body idea. But no, I can't think about a I can't figure out a way that those two things might be connected. So I'm just dipping into conspiracy thought here. I mean, there are going to be microtubules in the, the cells around your spine. I know. I was just kind of trying to think of like, is the microtubule the spine of the cell? <laughs> And I don't know that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think what so. What I do know is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. I don't know, Diddley. I ain't a scientist. I, I learned that from, I think, Schoolhouse Rock. Either that or I learned it from the meme. Sure. Memes are highly educational where I'm from. Where you're, where you're from? Tumblr. Tumblr. Oh, Jesus. The next time that Alex was both awake and alone in her room, uh, things started getting a bit spooky. In the middle of the night, out of the shadows of her room, one patch of darkness took on a distinct and separate shape. As Alex watched, confused and half certain she was asleep again, the dark outline of a man emerged, pacing as though agitated. Behind him, more shadows trailed, like he was leaving ink in his wake. She must have fallen asleep at some point because the next thing she was aware of was two irritating and rude pigs in her room. These pigs, instead of being cute with curly tails and floppy ears, wore badges and claimed they were officers of the California Highway Patrol. <laughs> Come on, Chip. Hire some dogs for once. Oh, jeez. Cop jokes. So anyway, these caps had partial jurisdiction of the accident and used it as an opportunity to bully a traumatized disabled woman. Instead of taking a statement, it became an interrogation. They accused Alex of being drunk and said the other driver didn't hit her at all. No, according to the other driver, remember, the lying bitch, Alex magically fell from the sky and rolled off her hood. Yeah, that seems like something that a cop would believe. Yeah, I, I do remember that uh, there was some conjecture that, uh, in fact, it was the grassy lawn that rolled onto my van <laughs> and not the other way around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, granted, that might have just been the concussion. <laughs> Angry, exhausted, and in pain, Alex pushed back at denying what they said. It was at this point that she noticed a new arrival. The man in leather had come back and was standing to the side, watching. To Alex, he looked angry, almost menacing. She chalked it up to hallucination and continued trying to get the cops off her back. The more agitated she grew, the angrier the man became. Quote, it was like our emotions were synced up. Though she couldn't hear him, he seemed to be yelling at the officers, trying to ward them off. Obviously, they didn't acknowledge him. This bullshit continued until one cop, without permission, lifted her hospital gown and began groping her legs, claiming she was checking for bruises. Due to the, you know, excruciating pain, Alex yelped, and the nurse from earlier descended upon the room like an angry mother raccoon. After confirming that Alex hadn't had a drop to drink all night, she chased away the cops, and the man in leather seemingly shouted in agreement. When the cops were gone, so was the man. Between the drugs, exhaustion, and ongoing shock, this wasn't making sense to her yet. But don't worry, it will. In the morning, Alex's mother arrived, bright and early. Despite the many, many, many speed bumps in their relationship, they cried together. She confirmed some of what Alex had seen during her out-of-body experience. She'd called many of Alex's friends, and a large group of them had arrived at the hospital to wait for news. In a moment of rare emotional honesty, her mother said that without Alex, she'd lose her reason for living. 
But now there was the future to consider, both short and long term. Alex would have to skip the next semester of school. She was in no condition to attend. And remember the lying bitch from the overpass? Yeah. Turns out, in addition to missing basic integrity, she had no auto insurance and literally fled to Mexico to avoid facing the music. I low-key hope she caught an STD there. (laughs) (laughs) The ortho surgeon arrived with difficult news. Alex had broken three vertebrae, vertically sheared her pelvis, which, oh my God, I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, that, I, I shivered. That is, that, the one thing I'm very grateful of is I've never had injuries, like, really below the belt area, which yeah. I'm happy about, because breaking a leg or, God forbid, your pelvis sounds so fucking painful. Uh, I haven't broken anything, but I've done a number to my legs, and I can tell you, it is painful. Yeah. Alex had broken three vertebrae, vertically sheared her pelvis, and shattered her tailbone. Normally, the surgeon didn't even work on patients this bad because very few lived long enough to reach his table. He presented Alex with a choice, let the bones heal naturally and have her legs be permanently uneven, or undergo intensive surgery and be filled with surgical pins and screws, as well as risking the loss of feeling in her feet. Ignoring her mother's attempted meddling, Alex thought of her love of dance and performance and chose surgery. Once the surgeon left, Alex agreed to let her mother brush her hair. She wasn't overly excited. Her mother insisted on pigtails, which Alex found childish and embarrassing. Keep that in mind, that Alex didn't want her hair in pigtails. Up until then, the morning had been dead man free. That, it seemed, was about to change. As Alex's mother reached for the hairbrush, it jumped away from her. To be fully accurate, Alex describes it as hopping. To her and her mother's eyes, it looked like someone had picked up and then dropped the hairbrush. Not saying anything about it, Alex's mother reached for it again and it hopped a second time, skidding completely off the tray it was resting on. When her mother finally wrangled the brush, neither of them talked about it. The day brightened slightly, for a few hours at least. Her friends arrived bearing gifts and cards to fill the bare room up a bit. Stuffed toys and brightly colored balloons reminded her of the love she had waiting for her outside of this horrible moment. Even the director of the show she'd been rehearsing on the day of the accident came to visit. Alex doesn't sugarcoat the devastation she felt over realizing that she would not recover in time to fulfill her role in the play. This, to her, was the biggest tragedy so far, and to this day, it is the only play she has ever dropped out of. But this reprieve didn't last for long. Not all nurses are valiant guardians, and some of the other kind arrive to put a waffle pad under her. Waffle pads prevent and reduce bud sores in bed-bound patients, but placing them requires being moved to a gurney temporarily. Just like the other times this was done, it hurt, and Alex invoked her God-given right to scream her head off about it. Helplessly, she begged the nurses to stop, telling them it was too much. As she did, she saw a shadow blooming in her room, moving around oddly as she wept and shouted. Seemingly from nowhere, a breeze blasted through the room, knocking her cards over. So, professionally, if there's something you need to do to a patient and they're howling about it, you're supposed to soothe them, acknowledge the pain, and get through it as fast as possible. What you aren't supposed to do is what these chittering hell bimbos did. They proceeded to mock and shame her, telling her not to be dramatic. And one even told her, how are you going to have children if you can't handle this? A remark that still stings Alex to this day. As they continued actively abusing a patient, the man in the leather jacket appeared. 
Once again, he was furious, hovering around the scene. The madness stopped when Alex's mother called down the thunder. The orthosurgeon exploded into the room and began berating the band of nurses for their callousness and idiocy. Apparently, they either hadn't read the chart or hadn't processed the information. They were not moving her correctly based on her injuries and may have actually done further damage to her bones. Once they'd been chased back to whatever shit farm spawned them in the first place, Alex's mother flew off to file a complaint, which was hopefully code for commit justified homicide. And Alex was alone, trying to cry through her emotions. The man in the leather jacket had disappeared. Another breeze blew through the room, despite the closed windows and inactive air vents. Tension mounted in the air, despite her solitude. Then, once again, her hairbrush jumped. Seeing that, Alex decided she had to find out what had happened to the man in the next bed. Later, her favorite nurse, the kind one that had driven off the chips, got back on shift and Alex asked about the man. The news that came back stunned her. Her fellow accident victim had died that night. The man she'd seen in her room, seemingly coming to her defense, had been gone for more than a day. Her mother, too, was horrified. For Alex, the man's death drove home for her how close she'd come to dying. That could have been her very easily. And she wasn't the only one having that thought. Later that same night, Alex was wheeled into surgery and put under anesthesia. She remembers looking forward to getting some sleep. But the drug-induced state was far from restful. Instead, Alex was plagued by a twisted nightmare. Alex always remembers her dreams vividly. She's been keeping a dream journal for years, and looking back through it seems to reveal some precognition. Images she sees in dreams have a habit of coming to pass about four years later, on average. Additionally, in these prophetic dreams, Alex feels very little emotion, merely observing. She was not given that luxury this time. She found herself in a dim, smoke-filled place, which was lit in a faint red. She seemed to be alone, but was restrained. She couldn't move her limbs at all, as if they'd been bound to her sides. Distressed, Alex became aware of another presence and managed to look at it. The man in the leather jacket was there, covered in blood and visibly dismembered. His skin was hanging off the right side of his face, and Alex thought it looked as though he'd been mutilated with a giant cheese grater. She could sense his emotions, too. Pure rage. As his blood oozed onto the floor, the man circled her. Alex felt like prey, and her predator was far from silent. He screamed at her, demanding to know why she'd lived while he died. She felt as though this went on for days. At some point, she started to come to. Every blink changed the scenery. The red, smoky room in one moment, her recovery room in the next. Eventually, she was free of the red room completely, safe in the real, physical hospital. I, a quick question here. Do we think that she was out of body then? Or was that, was that something happening in her head? Because, I mean, the, again, she brings this up in the book, uh, which is the first thing I thought when we came upon the scene is that, you know, she was under anesthesia. Our current understanding of anesthesia is the brain is simply turned off. It's not, no, you shouldn't have She wasn't dreams. under anesthesia at this point. She wasn't? During surgery? Yeah, she was. This was, was this during surgery? Yeah, yeah this was oh, during, okay. yeah, this was the scene during her surgery. Okay, I must have missed that part. Then, uh... Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Cool, because then I was just sitting there trying to figure out, okay, if she's out of her body, where is she? Like, where? what is that that red room? Uh, that could... Yeah. 
I yeah, I have no idea because you're right. It's like I I I think we we've all been under surgical anesthesia in this room, right? At least once. Yep. I've been under it a couple times. Quite a few, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's never um, any dreams. It was you blink and it's over. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've never I've never dreamed. Um at least not that I recall. Uh the only amount of awareness I had during one uh surgery I was under is I was aware of things being black for about five seconds, but like it just felt like I'd blinked for a long time. Yeah. And so yeah, you know what yeah. you what know, you know was the one thought I had. It's kind of silly. What? But uh so it made me think about imagine if you what if they are still in her head, but and the red lights is I was thinking, when where else do I see red lights? There's a lot of emergency lighting that's red. And so it turns out that's just like that there's no power to the building emergency <laughs> lights that turn on in your internal psychic space. It could be that it's something like uh like a mindscape of some sort that she was in, mm-hmm. like something internal. But then, why? How does that explain why the man in the leather jacket was there inside of her, her, her space? So I, I don't know. I think her being out of body probably makes more sense. I. What, what if yeah. she was in his head? But he did. He still has a a thinking mind. If he's, you know, a thinking, intelligent apparition. I guess that depends on how you how you look at it because so then are you saying that anybody could accidentally go into the mind of any spirit? In theory, I mean, but granted, there is again this is my I might be jumping ahead here, but there was a mention in the book that she felt she had some kind of connection to him because he died in her presence and they had that moment when they were both out of body. But we don't actually know when he died or whether or not she was present for that. Okay, okay fair. But she she suspected there was some sort of spiritual entanglement that happened. Yeah. So I mean, if that was his mind, that would be a point in that in that theory. A point to the credit of that theory. There we go. Could be. It would be the first time I'd ever heard of somebody accidentally or purposely getting into the mindscape of a spirit. Yeah. No, I I've never heard of it either. Be interesting. Raises the question of can you read a ghost's mind? Okay, we need to find a telepath. <laughs> And then we need to find a medium to get the ghost on lock. And then we're going to form the Avengers. No, we're not forming the Avengers. I don't want to be sued by Disney for copyright infringement by forming the Avengers. We're going to form the Revengers. No, that's copyrighted too. Thor Ragnarok, remember? The Avengers? I guess. The Jurors. What? <laughs> Eventually, she was free of the Red Room, safe in the real physical hospital. Still drugged to kingdom come, she fell asleep and dreamed of being trapped in a dark maze. Desperately, she looked for an exit. The only one she found brought her back to the man in the leather jacket. When she woke properly, her mother had summoned a prayer circle from her church group. A dozen men stood in her room, pleading with the Lord to save her soul and cast the devil out. Alex locked eyes with her mother and instinctively knew that her mother had seen through her silence and knew something bananas was happening. That night, Alex's friend Anne stayed in her room, cuddling with her in bed and making her feel safe enough to finally sleep. Despite Anne's presence, a dark shadow lingered in the corner of the room, waiting. The next two weeks were not much easier for Alex. After her catheter was removed so she could begin walking again, she needed assistance going to the bathroom. She also had to battle through the pain and the encroaching atrophy of her limbs to use her walker. 
As she struggled through the first steps of recovery, the man in the leather jacket hovered. He sneered at her, laughed, and visibly enjoyed her suffering. During the day, he was merely a shadow, peeking around nurses or lingering in her room. Alex didn't talk about him, never screamed, and merely tried to ignore him. She did note, however, that anyone passing through said shadow would shiver, as though suddenly cold. Point to potentially being a ghost? Yeah, no, that's, that's something very interesting to me, is that other people were having a physical reaction to his presence. It's just interesting that no one else saw him. Like, you know, you hear about hauntings, it's usually... Uh, over time, multiple members of the household will see the entity or have fl- at least passing sightings out the corner of their eye. It seemed like she was only the one, the only one who could ever see him. And most of the effects were centered on her. Of course, that's because he was haunting her. But I still find it surprising, like the the mother never saw it. Um. So there. So again, uh, there you are correct that in the vast majority of hauntings, even if they're focused on one person, most other people in the house will see them at some point. But that's not necessarily true in every case. Not everybody saw it in Brownsville Road. Yeah, there was that one oldest daughter with a ghost literally never bothered her at all. And she like didn't fully believe the house was actually haunted. The husband at the the Conjuring House only had positive reactions and I don't think ever physically saw it. Yeah. um, And Charlie in The Uninvited may have not seen anything at all. Or he might have and just never said a thing. We can't trust a lot of what Charlie said about that situation. I mean, I don't trust a lot of what that book says about the situation, but... um, No, but it kind of goes back to that idea of them being somehow entangled. I mean, you know, he had that that mantra of why, why you and not me? Why did you survive and not me? What if the entanglement had nothing to do with the fact that they were in the trauma center at the same time or even saw each other while at a body, but because she was kind of an emotional anchor for him to keep him angry enough to really uh, stay in this world, to stay connected somehow? That's actually going to be one of our last discussion questions is talking about the man in the leather jacket and the implications of him. Okay, I will shut up. Visiting hours, when the daylight kept the man a silhouette, were a respite from his bullshit. Alex's friends, her boyfriend Kevin, or her mother were always there, distracting and entertaining her. The nights, however, were very different. Jacket Man would become fully visible and would cause trouble in her room, knocking over her things as he paced like a caged animal. At some point in her recovery, she was moved to a different hospital, the same hospital where her beloved grandmother had died. And for a few days, the jacket man didn't follow. Relieved, Alex hoped he was stuck in the old hospital. But just like on New Year's Eve, Mike, the cartoonish parody of a shitty ex, had to throw a radioactive monkey wrench into an already banged up machine. And he did that by paying Alex a visit. While this visit was meant to be an apology, Mike never managed to hork up an I'm sorry just gawked at the machines Alex was hooked to and eventually slunk away. Back to his own shit farm, I presume. After he was gone, Alex got a call from Mike's current girlfriend. You know, one of the ones that had been harassing Alex for allegedly stalking her precious boyfriend. This gullible rando wasn't, for once, trying to rub salt in the wound. Instead, she wanted to apologize and tell Alex something troubling. On the night of the accident, Mike called me after you two talked. He said that he wished you'd get hit by a car. After the call ended, Alex heard a knock and looked up. 
Jacket Man was back, staring at her with eyes that Alex described as half-crazed. With a sinking feeling, Alex realized it wasn't over and that the man could follow her here, home, and for the rest of her life. And on that distressing cliffhanger, we're going to go into our second discussion question. Whoa! Let's talk about Mike's special New Year's Eve wish. That's a pretty disturbing revelation, right? On this show, we've talked about intention, about manifestation, and the power of the human will. Do we think Mike caused this accident, or was it merely a coincidence? And if he did wish this into existence, what are the implications of that? Um, so, do I think that Mike caused the accident? I think it would be a stretch to say that I that I that I I I that I think that right, uh, uh, based on evidence he wasn't there. It, it's hard to to prove, you know, psychic whatever. That being said, um, he's definitely at least in part to blame. Yeah, both metaphysically and physically. Yeah, um, because like. She wouldn't have been there at the time that she was had he not been a douche and, like, led her on about a separate party. She likely would have already had been at the other party drinking and having a good time with her friends. Uh, But because Mike is a super douche, not just a regular douche, he's a super douche. Comes with a cape and a lair. (laughs) uh, He didn't do any of those things. Uh, he, or he, you know, he did all the things that he did that led to Alex being in the situation that she was in. So if for no other reason, he is in part at fault for the accident. Now, um, I think personally, um, there's power to everything that we do, including manifesting negative things like that. When you put something out into the world there's a chance that it's you know that that something is going to happen right that's what i it's it's magic magic is good and bad okay i i don't know what mike's personal beliefs are i don't know if he is a uh, was a a practicing you know uh spiritualist in any in any way um and whether or not he was he put that out there and then it happened that's coincidence Maybe, um, but I, I, I don't, I think it's hard if the, I think they became exes after that, Alec, or uh, the girl that told Alex this and Mike, yeah. I think they broke up. Yeah. Like yeah. right before she told him, she told Alex that or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think she and Mike were not, were actively not together at that point when she called Alex and told her what it, what yeah. it had said. Now. She, she, the uh, other, the uh, the now ex of Mike has a lot of motivation to lie here. Interesting. And I think that because there is, depending on whatever story Mike spun, right? Maybe Mike threw the threw it back on her and saying that you know Mike canceled with Alex because she was going to come to the party now or this that the other thing. So. She could have been saying something like this to try and throw Alex off the scent of her being in any way to blame for the accident. So why not say something like this? She dated Mike. 
and seemingly was a was one of the people that harassed Alex before. So is very clearly willing to lie and be kind of a bitch. So that being said, we do have to take what she said with a grain of salt. But at the same time, that is super weird to say. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's super weird that that is the, like, why? why? Like, of, like, why would you even say that other than like to make Alex spiral? You know, yeah. yeah, it's like in moments of anger, I I often say, I hope I hope so and so gets Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. If any of those people actually came down with Lou Gehrig's disease, I don't think I'd ever say that joke again. Jay said in this episode alone several times that, uh, you know, hoping several people would be attacked and or killed in some form. So we say those things all the time as jokes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we, you know, whatever. I don't think in any way Mike having said that would have been a joke because he is terrible. Well, yeah, the intent would be different. Right, and as we've talked about many, many times, intent matters. Yeah. So I think personally, regardless of evidence, based on what I've heard and what I've said or, or what, what, what I've read, and what we, you know, all, all the whatever's presented to us, I absolutely think that Mike is probably at least 80% at fault here, both metaphysically and physically, okay? What are the implications of that? Um, magic is real, <laughs> and it is good and bad, right? You know, bad people have access to the same cool shit that we have access to. And how do we deal with it? Um, grenade launchers. Uh, yeah, we can't really uh protect ourselves. Uh, I guess try to you know uh uh yeah. Unfortunately, there's not much that I think we can do. Oh, no. That that being said, that doesn't mean that if I wish with my fullest intent that uh. You know, the person that I hate the most would get hit by a car that they're going to go get hit by a car tomorrow. No, I think there was a lot of factors, both physically and not, that led to this happening. I think, if anything, Mike's intent of wishing something like that made it more possible that that was going to happen. You know, like the probability increased because there was also somebody else pushing for events to go that way. The odds were already high when you're on bad roads because it was raining and it's New Year's Eve, so there's shitty drivers everywhere. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, she was already high anxious, having, uh, you know, was probably caught up in her own head because of everything else that was happening, so maybe she wasn't paying as much attention to the road. All of these factors, including that intent from Mike, being played in is what led to this happening, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I I think I agree. Um, uh, you know, of course, we don't know, we don't know what how powerful the power of intent and willpower is on a macro scale. But I like what you said there about probabilities. Uh, in that maybe if it was just Mike saying, "I hope she gets hit by a car," but it was a, it was a nice, clear, dry night, and there was no other drivers on the road, she would have been fine. Yep. Uh, for all we know, it just increases it by one percent or something like that. Oh, and another thing also to think about kind of on this topic of will, I mean, 
we, we, we also come into this question of what happens when your will is in conflict with my own. It might just come down to I, I actually kind of like the idea that it's all feeding into some sort of probability machine somewhere. And it's like, well, 50 people want this person to die horribly in a fire, but 75 really want them, their new album to do well. So guess what? Their new album's going to do well. I, I honest to God think that that plays a huge part into a lot of things. That's why uh, there's, you know, that's why when you do like group magic and things like that, it seems to be more potent because you have more people building on the same energy and same intent. Uh, it increases the probability that something like that is going to happen. I absolutely think that that's a that that's a, a real thing. Yeah. And, and also, I agree with your statement that Mike, if he said something like that, he'd probably mean it on some level, especially because I'm sorry, like the whole. Your tears mean nothing to me. Reads like every shitty self-insert anime boy fanfic I've ever read. It, it, it is this. It is the uh, attitude of a total edgelord who believes that he is uh, the hero in some dramatic, broody story where he is perpetually the victim. Yep. Uh, now, granted, part of that is uh, Mike reminds me very intensely of a lot of people that I've met in my life. Yeah. And, a lot of people I used to hang out with. And so I might be projecting a little there. Uh, no, I have a vivid memory of one time I was an undergrad and I was hanging out with a bunch of friends from uh, the club I was part of before I was part of your guys' club. Uh, and there was, there was this one girl there who said that he was talking about a guy she was potentially going to start dating. And, he's, and she's like, but he's got some problems. And he keeps saying things like, you should stay away from me. I'm dark and troubled. And I was like, stay away from him. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, he's setting you up so that when he does shitty things to you in two and a half years, he can be like, I warned you, I'm the spawn of Satan. I'm like, don't fucking play with that. Don't mm -hmm. feed into whatever that is. Exactly. Well, and it, again, it might, like you just said, Mike, it seems like someone who uh, has no interest in being better so he has to make the world worse to match him. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, quite frankly, fuck those kinds of people. Yep. I hope he jumps off a cliff and dies. I, too, hope he jumps off a cliff and dies. <laughs> you realize if he doesn't, I'm going to be racked with guilt, right? I'm not sure if I would, because I don't know who he is, so... Suicide and is an act I, of free will. And I assume that his name isn't actually Mike, so... Yeah, it's probably a good thing we didn't actually get his name. Can you imagine, like, doxing someone in your ghost book? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I don't, I don't actually practice that kind of magic, so... Do you... Weirdly, the whole of it's just, like, Alex writing about this guy. It's like, we're gonna call him Mike, and just all the fans of the book being like, we're gonna... I, I hope this man gets eviscerated by demons. Just reminds me of... Do you remember the Bed Intruder song from, like... 2010, 2011. The bed intruder. Song? Neither of you guys remember this. I have no, no idea what you're talking yeah, no about. No clue. A video went viral on YouTube of there was this, there was like this um housing project where a woman had woken up and there was a, a guy she didn't know had climbed in through her window and was crawling into her bed, and she and her brother chased him out. 
and like neither one of them were traumatized or scared. They were talking. <laughs> they were talking to the press. Just, That's the hide your kids guy. Yeah, hide your kids, hide your okay, wife. <laughs> I know the video that that originated from. I didn't know they made it into a song. Yes, they remixed it into a song, and then the song also went viral. And by viral, I mean that there was a marching band in San Diego that played it at their high school halftime show, and it was like getting. <laughs> played on the radio and talked about on talk shows and my father thought it was the funniest thing in the world it's like can you imagine being that guy that tried to hurt that poor woman well obviously we have a rapist in lincoln park he's climbing in your windows he's matching your people up trying to rape them so y'all need to hide your kids hide your wife hide your kids hide your wife hide your kids hide your wife and hide your husband because they're raping everybody out here Oh my God! So what the hell does that have to do with manifesting uh, uh, negative <laughs> no, things in the no, world? I was just picturing like both Mike and the subject of this Bad Intruder song just being like, "I thought I could do something shitty in private, and now it's a national sensation that I suck." Yeah, yeah, that's what happens when you're a douche muffin. I was, I was totally waiting for you to connect it to the larger yeah. metaphysical ideas, but no. Nope, your 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 fucking ADD ADHD brain just sprinted off to 2010 without us. It was my ringtone for three years. That explains a lot. Every time you got a call, hide your kids, hide your wife. That actually really does yeah, explain like, a no, lot. I, I I get you, and I get I get the person I encountered what six years ago now. How I'm just finding out about this is beyond me, but here we yeah, are. Yeah, I don't know. Apparently, we just unlocked a f- another formative moment in the, in the Jay backstory. What? You consider that a formative moment that Ben Intruder was my ringtone? Well, For three years. Three years? That's a, that's, a, that's a long fucking time to have such a wild song the most as your ringtone. The most memorable ringtone I had is I had the T-Rex roar from Jurassic Park, and that lasted a month before I got tired of it. But you were bopping along to that song for three goddamn years? My high school was very permissive. <laughs> Wild. I don't think I... when Back when I cared about my ringtone, I don't think I had one for longer than like a month or two because I would change it so often every time I found a new song that I liked. Well, do you know how I'm completely technology illiterate? Um, You're not completely technologically illiterate. You just think you are, and so you don't try. You shared me a Google Doc today, which is way better than a lot of people can do. I have seen you do so much on computers that people who are actually computer illiterate could not do. Like what? Use Word. What? Search the internet. What? Know what a website is. What? Email. What? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, but so I couldn't figure out how to set that as my ringtone on my own and my sister did it for me. And so I didn't change it because I didn't know how to change it. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> now I understand how it stayed there for three years because. Executive dysfunction. Yeah. Yes. That's what it is. It's not, it's not lack of knowledge. Executive dysfunction. And also, seriously, listeners, go listen. Go look up the song. It was incredible. I they're think gonna, they got the gist gonna, of it. They're gonna hear that snippet. I'm gonna leave it in. Hear, listen to the rest of it. It's amazing. It's only it, two minutes long. So it it. Wh- 
What could the other verses possibly contain that was not oh, encapsulated? It's just all of it's going to be that on repeat. <laughs> okay, just keep going. I'm this is lunacy. Yeah, we're done with this question. Move on. As the days passed, Alex continued to suffer through the grief, trauma, and stress that comes with catastrophic injury. All the while, Jacket Man lingered. To Alex, it seemed like he was feeding off her torment. She turned 20 years old while still in the hospital and tried to adjust to Jacket Man's potentially permanent presence. It was a lot of P words. <laughs> while no one else could see him, she was fairly certain her mother could sense his presence. Not yet the veteran spook chaser that she is today, Alex never thought to communicate with the presence and instead hoped that he'd go away on his own. In addition to knocking over her possessions and generally being a nuisance, he tried to antagonize the nurses. He'd circle around until he could trip one and then look at Alex like, See? See what I can do? After leaving the hospital, Alex needed to move back in with her mom. For the first week, things were quiet. Then she sensed Jacket Man's presence moving around the house. Then she started seeing shadows out of the corners of her eyes, and his voice would whisper her name. Alex braced for his return, wondering which form he'd come in. Heavy shadows? A man intact and whole? Or mangled corpse? Today, Alex wonders if he chose how he wanted to look, or if it reflected his emotional state. But past Alex wasn't there yet. No, past Alex, when we get back to her, was trapped in her bathroom, too weak to stand as Jacket Man cornered her. He'd appeared in the doorway, bloody and seething, and moved closer when she tried to look away. Just like in the hospital, Alex refused to talk about it. The Jacket Man stayed a secret, even as his terror campaign cranked up. Not even her mom, who clearly sensed him too, could be relied on. According to Alex, her mother believed only in demons, in the devil. And this to Alex, was clearly a human man. Desperate to escape him, Alex had her friends begin bringing her to campus with them. While they were in class, she read plays and books on acting in the library. At least she did until the day of the library chase occurred. Successfully terrified, Alex started avoiding the library unless she was accompanied. Eventually, she began physical therapy, which, while healing, introduced new stresses and pains into her daily routine. Worse still, Jacket Man had zero respect for her privacy and stalked her everywhere she went, disrupting an already shitty process. I mean, Nick, how pissed would you have been if some dead asshole was making faces at you while you tried to learn how to use your arms again? Uh, no, I'd been really pissed off. Like, PT on its own is its own special kind of hell. Because, like, you're not in as much, you know, well, I mean, in my case, I wasn't in as much agony as I was, obviously, just following the accident or the various surgeries. Um, but it was that kind of, you know, when you get you kind of overwork out and you get that soreness that goes just a hair past, uh, you know, a hair past where you can kind of easily handle it without it impeding your day. Yeah. Um, yeah, that the whole body pretty much after you spend two weeks in a hospital bed. Just walking around and using resistance bands makes you feel like you just got hit by a car all over again. I uh, I have a relative who severely injured their shoulder and needed to was told they were going to have to spend like a year or something in PT and they quit like partway through. They were like, you know what? I'd rather have the limited range of motion. They keep doing this four times a week. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I don't get me wrong. I'm glad I stuck with it. And I had great physical therapists. It sounded like Alex did, too. So, I mean, God bless people who are doing that work. But it is difficult. Yeah. 
Still the tiniest bit in denial, Alex kept trying to ignore him. But the more she did that, the more he fought for her attention. To her, it seemed as though every milestone towards recovery angered him more. Like her moving on with his life offended him personally which is incredibly self-centered and indicates that he needs intensive therapy. A smack in the face. <laughs> but at the time, Jacket Man was the only one doing the smacking. During an intense argument with her mom, Alex says, the entire house began to shake, but in a way that was distinctly not an earthquake. Alex and her mom are from California. They know earthquakes. This was something else. The tremors grew worse and worse until something like a sonic boom rang through the house. Pictures and framed mirrors fell from the wall, and Alex's mother dove for her Bible. She began to read from the book of Psalms, and Alex saw Jacket Man appear. As her mother read, he laughed, clearly amused by this futile attempt to chase him off. In that moment, Alex felt her faith in God tested. Quote, It was like he saved me from the wreck, but then left, like I had reached my limit on salvation. When the Bible reading stopped, so did the rumbling. But that was far from the worst thing he intended to put Alex through. That he was saving for when she could walk well enough to move from the downstairs bedroom to the upstairs one. After the complete dick move of playing peekaboo in an upstairs window and making her fall on her bad hip, Jacket Man made an actual attempt on Alex's life. In the middle of the night, she awoke to the sound of footsteps on the stairs, but got no response when she called out. Then she felt massive pressure on her chest. Something was on top of her, pressing her down into the mattress, and she could no longer breathe. Her eyes snapped open, and Jacket Man had his hands wrapped around her throat. Alex couldn't even beg for her life. But luckily, it ended as abruptly as it started. The pressure vanished, and she was able to scream for her mother. This could possibly be chalked up to sleep paralysis except for the red marks later found on Alex's neck. Alex didn't sleep by herself after that, choosing to share her mother's California king bed instead. The man probably stopped choking her because once she was in the middle of that, I doubt he could reach. Either way, it was time for some kind of intervention. In the ensuing weeks, as Alex struggled with her faith in God, her mother reached out for assistance. Finally, help arrived in the form of a tiny, elderly Greek woman. Coming from a Greek Orthodox church, the woman examined Alex and seemed agitated by whatever she saw. Using some olive oil, she made the sign of the cross on Alex's forehead before pouring some leftover oil into a glass of water. Evidently, she was performing a form of scrying. Whatever she saw in the patterns compelled her to mark Alex's forehead again. Another squint into the glass, and she moved on to praying all around the house. The woman spoke very little English, communicating through two assistants she brought with her. According to them, she diagnosed Alex with a nasty case of evil eye, co-current with some acute angry spirit, and prescribed a spray bottle of holy water to be sprayed in the sign of the cross once per day before bed. Alex was relieved by the validation, taking it as a sign she wasn't crazy. On the other hand, God was starting to look less like an all-loving father and more like a deadbeat landlord. Where was he during this evil eye shit, Alex rightly wondered. After the ritual, there was a shift in the atmosphere of the house. Alex describes it as muzzling an aggressive dog. Jacket Man was still there, but no longer visible. Alex could sense him, but her perception of him was changing too. He no longer struck her as evil now that the ritual had robbed him of much of his menace. Perhaps inspired by the reference to the evil eye, envy and jealousy, 
Alex reflected on how unfair all of this must look to him. She got to live and grow and heal, got to stay with her family and chase her dreams while all of that was over for him. Why you and not me indeed. But before Alex could fully commit to this new understanding, another brass knuckle sucker punch rained down from the clear blue sky. And once again, it was Mike's fucking fault. Remember Kevin, the new boyfriend? So Mike, the shitty old boyfriend, once again had his latest boiling frog doing his dirty work, and Alex was getting harassed again. Kevin, who was a man of saintly patience, finally had enough, and he and Mike agreed to meet in person to hash things out once and for all, a.k.a. punching. So where was this arena to be built? Downtown, at night, in the middle of gang territory. Kevin showed up. Mike did not. And by pure coincidence, seemingly, Kevin was shot and killed during an initiation and died in the hospital two weeks later. Among the possessions that Alex and his family sorted through was an engagement ring marked for Alex. That was a gut punch. Uh, I, uh, I struggled. Let's just, that just, hurt. It's that, just so random. Just yeah. he, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he got gunned down a gang initiation. This was the part of the book that made me remember, oh shit, I did see this episode of Haunted Hospitals because I... I'm pretty I'm pretty sure they do reference that in her episode of Haunted Hospitals like towards the end or something or maybe she was on a different show because I remember thinking the exact same thing when I was watching that episode of what the fuck like how does mathematically how does this even happen Odds are the odds are slim that's for sure cuz Mike was back home praying to a demon I, 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 I will blame Mike exclusively for all the Th- woes. This, of this, this book. one is his fault. Oh yeah, no, it, it, this one absolutely is his fault. Ma- magic or intent, it, it will, will and matter. intent aside, it is his fault directly. He was on, Kevin was only there so that they could throw punches at each other, likely because that's likely how hashing things out was going to go. Yeah, and uh, had Mike showed up, the situation might have been different, or they both might have died. But we also don't know. That the gang initiation wasn't set upon by Mike telling that gang that he was going to be there. Part of me was wondering that because uh, unlike the car accident, this feels like something Mike legitimately could have planned. It feels intentional because why else would that have happened? Uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah, and it's just, it, again, we were talking about this off air. The sheer insanity of after she gets hit by the car, continuing the shit of sicking his new girlfriends on her. Yeah. I, I cannot fathom that level of shittiness and sadism. Well, and you want to know the funny thing is that this book is mostly about her being haunted by this horrifying visage of this menacing, murderous man who looks like a mangled corpse. And yet we all are fixating on fucking Mike. Because he somehow is the biggest monster in the book. Yep. 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 I mean, applause. I mean, I guess you get you get the biggest asshole award. Now we're going to shoot you into the sun. Alex, to put it horribly lightly, was devastated. She fell into a deep depression and her wounded state lured Jacket Man out of hiding. Feeling more truly alone than she ever had, Alex couldn't even summon the will to be scared of him. Instead, she grew angry. It was her turn to question the fairness of it all. Why had Kevin never appeared to her? 
Why was she instead seeing this nasty spirit who tormented her for months on end? For a time, she withdrew from her entire life, numb to everything. When she crawled a little bit out of that place, she found it in herself to try one more time. One day, alone in her bedroom, she lit a candle and prayed for protection and guidance. When she sensed the man's presence, she did something she hadn't before. She called out to him and asked him to come and talk to her. Footsteps approached, and then Alex saw him. He was different. More than muzzled, he was spent. Quote, he was ready to go and didn't know how to move on. Something was holding him back. As he watched her sadly, Alex told him that his death wasn't her fault, that she was innocent, that he wasn't welcome in her life, despite how sorry she was that he died. He got angry, asking again why it was him dead and not her. Alex told him she didn't know, and this needed to end. He had to find peace elsewhere. She closed her eyes, feeling the air tense around her, and waited. The tension snapped, and he was gone. Alex opened her eyes to an empty room and a house that somehow seemed brighter. Her cat, who had been avoiding this room since the midnight attack, even came back inside for a quick nap on the bed. Alex only saw the jacket man one last time, at a distance, leaning against her parked car while she laughed with her friends. She thought he looked happy. And with that, we're going to be going into our last two discussion questions. Okay. All righty. In one of the chapters I didn't cover, Alex presents some alternative theories about the man in the leather jacket. Some are still supernatural, others more mundane. These theories include that he was a poltergeist born of her pain, that he was a thought form born of her trauma, or that he was simply a traumatic hallucination. Do these proposals hold any water, or is ghost still the most plausible explanation? Uh, I think it was a ghost. Yeah? I mean, really, of course, any of those other things are possible, but I don't... (laughs) I don't see poltergeist really working. I mean, one, she's not in, in the right age range for that to be happening, but also, or I guess the typical age range of such a thing exists. But also, uh, I don't know, like poltergeist hauntings, well, they do kind of develop a personality. They, they seem to have more agency, or I guess they, have, they, they do more than he did. He was solely focused on her, whereas... I mean, a lot of poltergeist cases we've we've read, yes, they focus on one person, but they don't they they still bleed out to the rest of the family. And yes, the mother was uh tormented a little bit, but it didn't feel like it was ever really about her or targeting her. Whereas we look at some things like, say, uh the Bell Witch haunting, which some people think may have been a a poltergeist case, and it was you could very easily make the argument that it was uh the young daughter's aggression and frustration towards her father that manifested into this thing that went after him. Whereas here, uh, I mean, it could be maybe a manifestation of Alex's self-hatred, but I didn't get the impression that she truly hated herself. She just thought she wasn't worth a lot. Um, the thought forms, maybe I, I think kind of Occam's razor applies in that I think it's more likely it's what it looks like, which would be a haunting, just a regular ghost, especially considering uh, the fact that, I mean, she saw the guy in that moment when she was popped out of body, right? I don't, I, I struggle to think that she, part of her brain in that life or death scenario is cooking up some random biker dude to haunt her. 
there was no personal connection to that image, to that guy. So I don't see where it would have come from inside of her. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And that's that's interesting. But yeah, no, so I, I lean towards Ghost. I, especially because, again, how it's resolved, he just decides to leave. You know, we, really, ultimately, the fight goes out of him. He, he has his confrontation with her. He realizes he's not going to get what he wants, and he has to find a different way to go about this. And you don't see that uh, with, uh, you don't see that very often with poltergeists. Those usually kind of fade out, right? Or you don't usually see that with things like uh, demo- demons. They have to get kicked out. They can't, you know, they're not going to just say, peace, I'm done. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, that seems most likely to me. And again, we also go back to what was mentioned earlier, people getting chills when they walk through him. Uh, also, how it, it seemed like it took effort for him to be doing things, like he was kind of new at it. You know, at the start, he's just making a hairbrush hop. And then later on, he's trying to strangle her and failing. Uh, I, I got uh, the same thing with tripping the nurses. Alex said that it, like it took him many tries before he could trip a couple of the nurses. Yeah, I definitely just got the image that this was a, a very newly created ghost or newly uh, bodiless ghost. And it he was just trying to figure out how to operate while at the same time giving into mad madness and anger. So I disagree. Okay. I think it's more likely that it was a poltergeist. And my reasoning is thus. Um, so, in, in response to a couple of the points that you made uh, about how you think it's not a poltergeist, so, like, why would it be that? Uh, the last thing that she saw before she thought she was going to die, before she blacked out and went into the, the out-of-body experience, was him. So that imprint of that fear of death the cause of that trauma or one of the causes of that trauma was him. And it was horribly traumatic what she saw sure. because it's, it was very visceral, very bloody, very scary. Uh, so I don't see it as a stretch for her brain to latch on to that image. She was already interested in the paranormal. So it would make sense to me that she would, easily manifest that trauma if we're assuming that poltergeist activity is innate psychic ability lashing out right yeah um that it would present itself in the form of a ghost because that's something that her subconscious understands now we saw repeatedly throughout this that the time that it the activity would pick up as her traumas would either get worse a new event would happen with the trauma or something for example um as uh, when she learned that Mike wished the accident would happen, immediately she saw him. True. As uh, the earthquake happened, the earthquake, or the not earthquake rather, she was in an argument with her mom. Um, after Kevin was killed, he came back. After she had already started to everything get back to normal. So the more that life became more normal for her, as she would ignore it and move, try to move on with her life, the uh, leather jacket man would disappear, would move more towards the background of her life as it would start to come back until she had come to grips with it herself, having the conversation with her own manifestation, whatever it might be, it would continuously come back as things would happen. So the accident happened and she was completely out of control of her, uh, uh, of her own life. You know, she was 
at the whim of her mom, who she didn't want to be, uh, she didn't want to be with. Uh, she wanted to be off on her own as she had been prior to the accident. So that entire time of rebuilding and trying to get back to normal is all traumatic for her. She is out of control and is very likely not going to be able to control the, any kind of psychic uh, powers that she did have. And she did show that she had them at some point because she, uh, when she was a child, she called out her grandfather's death. Yep. And there was that whole thing about her and her grandfather seemed to be able to communicate without talking. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So, I mean, maybe I, I, I think that you make a very compelling argument there. What if it's somewhere in between? So I, I thought that, too. Like, maybe it started off as a ghost and he was or, or that uh, there was a ghost, at least in the hospital. And I thought that at first, that maybe he was a ghost in the hospital, but the second when she switched hospitals, I think at that point, maybe it, be, it was the, the uh, it could have been more of poltergeist activity. Um, that being said, I, my, my, the last thought that I had about this was, um, like, I wonder if the apparition was visible, at least to her, because of the trauma that happened and the closeness to death that she became for whatever reason, she, her mind opened back up. So because she had spent a lot of her time trying to rationalize her own Christian faith, and then when, the, when this traumatic event happened and everything became in question, subconsciously her mind opened back up to the world. And so that skeptical side of her that was fighting with all of this was pushed down you know, below the surface a little bit. And then as she became more normal again, the skeptic side starts to creep back up and those, those, uh, those, um, like the innate psychic abilities that she was having become more and more suppressed again, because now she's trying to rationalize everything. She's not just letting it happen because she's out of control. Well, I, I think my question there would be though, I mean, if she went was starting to suppress it again, wouldn't that actually correlate with an increase in activity? Because if you're suppressed, I mean, isn't the whole idea that it's suppressed psychic ability or, or suppressed trauma or or powerful emotions? Not, I don't necessarily think so, and because she's more aware at this point that it may or may not be happening, so she's trying to rationalize what it may or may not be, so it's not happening anymore. Like when she's not in control, she's not trying to say, you know, this is a ghost or this isn't. She's just reacting or, you know, living in the moment. It's going to be more out of control because she is more out of control. Well, I mean, also, I, you know, it's actually another point. You, if it is a poltergeist, I mean, you, as we keep saying, as things got back to normal, but really what is normal for her is what was having friends was having this, this support group that she could actually talk to. Whereas very clearly she couldn't do that with her mother. Yeah. Correct. So maybe that is, that is it. So is that really, it was about getting back to a place where she had people, she could vent those powerful emotions to, uh, without having to get into a screaming match with her mother. Yeah. Cause remember it, the activity again went down when she was doing those outings with her friends. Yeah. Now, granted, I think, uh, I, I noticed the same thing where it seemed like bad things happen and then the activity would pick up. I My read on that, at least initially, was 
again, I was still kind of toying with the notion that they were somehow spiritually entangled or connected. And so I kind of read that as him feeding on her negative emotions, which is why he became darker and darker over time until she finally confronted him. Uh, that said, I mean, it could easily be either way or or none of them. My, my biggest struggle with the ghost thing is it follow, is him following her around. That's not common. No. Which is why I, which is why my thought turned to more like a poltergeist because it seemed more like it was coming from her than it was from something else. Yeah, I mean, I guess I my my I my I just immediately assumed, oh, he doesn't have anyone else in the world. He's gonna hook all his hopes and dreams on this one person who had a moment of connection with him. But then why not just stay at the hospital and have free reign on all the people that are dying, especially if you're just feeding off negative emotion? Because it could be that he, again, it could be that he feels some connection to her, that she is, his anger that she lived and he died is what's really keeping him together. Now that, again, I don't know, uh, I could very easily see your poltergeist argument holding water. I mean, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense. I had one insane theory about something that might have connected them that I, dis- that I discarded immediately just because I realized it was stupid. For half a second, I was like, did they give her his blood? Mm-hmm. Like, when they were both dying 10 feet from each other, did they realize that he was done and she wasn't? And did they give her his blood? And then I went, no, they wouldn't do that. They would uh, never do that. Odds are very, very, very low because yeah. they wouldn't have had time to run blood tests on both of them to get their blood types. Yeah, and also he was bleeding way more than she was. Yeah, yeah I mean, and most hospitals have a, a blood supply. Yeah, they have yeah. stockpile blood that doesn't require them to, you know, hey, let's yeah. Let's let let's siphon the gas yeah. out of this leaking tank before it's empty. <laughs> because they likely would have used universal universal blood because again, they wouldn't very likely wouldn't have had time to run a test to know what kind of blood test they were or yeah. what ty- what type of blood type they were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, I I discarded that immediately, but it was it was just like a thought that popped into my head of like, you know, I mean, it's a valid thought. Yeah, like because like you said, it's if he's anchored to her, there has to be some reason and was locking eyes across the room actually enough of one. I mean, I would say literally anything could be a reason to, to anchor to, to somebody, assuming that that's actually a thing. You know? Right, right. I mean, assuming... Because we don't know. <laughs> and, and in actual, outside of like role-playing games, I've never experienced anything that, in, that says that there's really... Like that ghosts actually anchor to anything other than like locations. I mean, they're haunted objects. I see those as different though. Like a haunted object, I don't like it itself is the haunting and the thing. It's not necessarily like the ghost itself is attached to it. It is, they are the same. Like the crone for, um, like with the Hellier folks and the crone, I don't, the crone is that object okay they are intimately the same thing so kind of like from a pantheism perspective it's the spirit of the object it's just some objects have noisier spirits right like and billy too right billy is the idol and i i I don't necessarily i mean i guess you could see that as like as an anchor because i suppose he can leave because he's present sometimes and not but also, like, I don't 
know. I guess I don't have enough experience with them to say that, ah, uh, because like they, I've never seen the new Kirks get EVPs from Billy and he him, and the object not being in the room. Yeah. Right. Um. And Billy, that to me also just sounds more like the the ancient Egyptian statues with the idea of if you build a statue in the image of a god, it becomes like their vacation house and mm-hmm. they can walk in and out of it whenever they want. But that object isn't haunted. It's like, like you said, it's an object that can essentially be play host to a larger entity. And much like what you said with the haunted object, when a god was inhabiting one of their idols, that that was Anubis, that was Osiris until it left again. Yeah. And that that all being said, again, I don't have a lot of experience with haunted objects, so I don't I can't say that there aren't a bunch. It's just in what we've read and what I've experienced, it's mostly been location-based versus object-based. While, yes, there are haunted objects, I guess I just see those as separate from ghosts. Okay, I mean, I'm not not sure I I feel the same way, but that said, maybe. I, I, uh... I, I mean, I've heard stories about ghosts following people, but then again, you come back to what's the difference between a ghost, ghost and a poltergeist? We don't really know because we don't really know how True. to define either of those terms in concrete facts. I, uh, I, I lean on this question. I lean more towards it as a poltergeist and it's, it's partially for a lot of the reasons that Rory listed, uh, the house shaking until the pictures fell off the walls and the mirrors started smashing, that was what most screamed poltergeist to me. Just because in my experience, things that seem more concretely ghosts tend not to shake the house. Like that, it, it, it just from what I've read and seen and heard. Um, the other thing that made me feel like it wasn't a ghost was the weird turn. Because before she went into surgery, he seemed almost protective and like he was on her side because he'd like show up when the nurses were being shitty or when the cops were harassing her and he'd like stand in the corner and yell at them. Yeah. And then after surgery, he, he and then after surgery, he started picking on her. And to me, the reason that that indicated poltergeist is because it felt it felt like that was linked to her emotional state and how she was feeling about herself. So like when she, she was being harassed by nurses and by the cops, she she was angry or upset towards them. So he was yes. afterwards feeling trapped and helpless. She was feeling bad about herself. So he dogged on her. Oh yeah. Also, I didn't even think about that part. That's actually, uh, that's really interesting. And also, he didn't start antagonizing her until someone came and confirmed for her that he died and she'd lived. And True. she'd been having that whole thing about, like, I don't deserve these nice yeah. friends. I don't deserve this nice play I'm in. Yeah, that's I true. Mean, that's a what? really good point. You guys are making an increasingly good case for this being a poltergeist. I, I also kind of like Rory, Rory's theory of, like, maybe it was a ghost at one point and then the ghost moved on and, rep- and a poltergeist replaced it. Like, I could also definitely see that. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I, I, I think uh, 
I think I just prefer to think of it as a ghost, and I think part of that is because there's that nice catharsis that maybe he did move on or or find peace later, whereas with the poltergeist, it's, yeah, I went back to your subconscious. But who knows? Maybe that's where all ghosts come from. But if he, if it was a poltergeist, we don't know that he didn't just go right back into the cycle. It's true. All right. Do we have any closing thoughts on the nature of Jacket Man? We have one more discussion question. Oh, yeah. Then then please ask the question. All right. It's it's almost a two-parter. For, it's it's almost like part B of this question of, of the first question. I'm just I'm just very intrigued. It's been a while since we actually talked about ghosts here on the podcast, and I'm wondering if your guys' perceptions or belief about our undead Americans have evolved in the interim. Because I think the last ghost we had was either Alma Fielding or um, the Union Screaming House. I think it was Screaming House. Yeah, I think it was Screaming House. I, um, I'll say this. I, I, I think my opinion on ghosts has evolved in that I am now less sure of what the definition of a ghost is. So maybe that that's it because I we've been you know reading about things like consciousness, manifestation, thought forms, uh, poltergeists. Uh, all of those things could, in my mind, easily be an umbrella under that an umbrella that is above all those other things. That's kind of how I see it too. Like, it's like ghosts is the base, like it is a uh, a, a uh, bodiless spirit form of some kind. What kind? Thought form, maybe poltergeist, maybe you know all of well, the. You and, know. and it's like what John Tenney brings up. I mean, the the base, the root of the word ghost goes back to geist, which goes back to basically meaning air. Yeah, breath. It's breath. Yeah. It's so yeah. it's basically it, it, the na- the state of being immaterial. Uh, yeah. That said, I I still do suspect that ghosts are a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I have no reason to doubt the stories I've heard of both residual hauntings and uh, intelligent hauntings. I do question sometimes uh, if that is ac- how much of the person that is. I think that's the big uh, sticking point that I'm on. Is that the soul or is it a memory? Uh, there, Actually, I did have one thought of what if it's the eye? Because, you know, we were talking about like, you know, with uh, both Jack Preston King and then with Whitley Strieber. This idea of there being an innate separation between the ego, the I, and the soul. So what if the soul enters the cycle and some egos, some eyes, are so attached to this idea that they are the self, they are the true self, that they stick around? And again, we go back to the ancient Egyptian idea of the shadow soul that stays behind. So I I, I am beginning to wonder if ghosts may just be an, an unruly ego that won't go that won't allow itself to be dissolved. Yeah, I like that. I I definitely think that there is some kind of like imprint or something that's left behind from from some people, uh, and that's what causes a a, a ghost as we we uh, as popular culture uh, understands it. Uh, that being said, I think it is far more complicated than just, you know, one or one or the other, you know, like, like we've said, I think I kind of see it like, I think you saying it like kind of an umbrella term is kind of how I see it now, because I think ghost is what I would go to if I couldn't tell what it would, what it could be more specifically or what the root source is, Mm -hmm. you know, 
Well, a lot like we, we've looked at, uh, for example, we go back to UFO cases and alien cases where they things happened seemingly uh, of a poltergeist nature, uh, mm. you know, disembodied entities moving things around, making sounds in the night. What's the difference between that and a ghost haunting? Yeah, I mean, probably not much, real yeah. realistically, but so, like, I, yeah, yeah, not yeah. So not I mean, much. I think I think that's it. I think ghost is the state of being immaterial. Yeah, that's kind. Of, yeah, I think I I think I agree with that ultimately because I think we can go because yeah, you can dive deeper into it once you find the root source. You kind of know more in line of what it might be. Oh, is this you manifesting? your untapped psychic energy or whatever so it's more of a poltergeist if you know that is the definition that we want to go by which for this show that's what we're going to go by for now um if it's uh the imprint uh like the shadow self you know then you know maybe it's like you know more the ego thing then yeah you know we go there maybe it's a shadow person you know so it was maybe never a living being and it's just one of those like shadow creatures maybe it's uh uh fuck i don't know maybe it's just some douchebag using a illusion machine i don't i don't know i mean actually i i also have wondered uh earlier we were talking about hauntings that focus on a single person and uh, the thought did pop into my head what if that do- what if rory's right and that doesn't happen in all the cases we've heard of that was just some asshole astral projecting to go and taunt their enemy. I've thought that before, actually. Like, what if some of these ones where it's like somebody just being an being an asshole is just somebody on the astral plane, or you know, going into the astral and fucking around with somebody because they know that they can see into it. Like, if I knew that you had your your you know your third eye, so to speak, open and could always see. Uh, like spirits and shit, but I also knew I could like astral project that well, dude. I'd totally fuck with you. I know you would. I absolutely would. Like and, and all I, the time. And I would make a concerted effort to trick you into a salt circle and leave you there while your body wastes away. And I would deserve it. And it, <laughs> and it would be hilarious to me. <laughs> You're laughing all the way to hell. Oh yeah. It would not be hilarious to me. FYI. Why you, can't I trap your husband? What? Not your husband. Sorry. Why can't I trap your partner's soul in the salt circle if they're haunting me? If they're haunting you, come and tell me and I will make them stop. But I, I would likely, it's not a real haunting because in this scenario, I'm astral projecting and now I'm just trapped. Yeah. Yes, of I, course, all this, this entire scenario relies on both of us having abilities that we do not have. Correct. In I, any way, shape or form. I have tried for so long. To yeah. astral project, and I've I've done it exactly twice, and I was so fucked up both times that I'm pretty sure it was a hallucination. <laughs> like, honestly, like I have tried doing it. I I went through some of the uh, Robert Monroe's gateway process just because I'm curious, you know. And I've tried doing it, you know, laying in bed at night, and I've gotten close. I've gotten to what they call the vibratory stage, where it feels like you have a real intense buzzing in in your yeah. body. But it always backs down, and it's usually because I get a pain in my back. So actually, I, I've often wondered, uh, and I, I meant to bring this up with the streamer books, but I didn't get around to it. If the metal, the, the metal wiring and bars that are in my back act as a sort of Faraday cage for my soul, like they keep me locked in here. I mean, I think to an extent it could be, like because there is a physical side to all of this, there, there is, there absolutely is. 
I, 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 th- I absolutely think that it could be acting as some kind of blocker, but I also think that all of those things can be overcome with enough practice and determination. I just think, unfortunately for you, it's going to be harder because it's your spine specifically. And I have some baggage. Yeah. But I mean, really, I mean, we all do. Well, and, and that could, that I, that could also make a lot of sense to me in the sense of, uh, I fought really hard to not leave this body mm-hmm. that there might be a part of me that instinctually really doesn't want to no, want I, that to ever happen. I apps, I absolutely think that that, that that is because that's going to be something in your subconscious that is going to be so hard for you to overcome. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's been the last decade of my life is dealing with the uh, sudden realization of my mortality. Exactly. And I just got chills. So I think we're on to something. All right. So the, the chills say they've, that, they've always pointed me in the right direction. I just got a fucked up brain and I got a seat of that. Did you ever get chills about me? Answer carefully. <laughs> Constantly. Yay. Actually, no, I can, I can attest to that. Rory and I used to have many late night drives when, where we would both bitch about the uh, the people that we wanted to date but couldn't nut up enough to ask. And now we're both married to those people. Correct. So. Those, those long talks on the car rides back from Mount Pleasant did us good. Yeah. Yeah, I, they did. Us, I mean, at a certain point, it was a little bit of self-abuse, but who cares? I'd, I, you know, completely unrelated to this, this book, but I disagree. <laughs> Only because we were venting. We weren't like, we weren't doing anything that was harmful in the sense of saying, well, woe is me, we're the worst. We're ju- we were just kind of venting to each other to say, why can't we do this? And I think if anything, by saying that we couldn't or why can't we do this helped us encourage each other to do those things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also, you were respecting my boundaries, which was more than any other person had done up to that point. Yeah. Well, anyway, back to the original question. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that my, uh, much like many elements of the paranormal, the more we do this show, the, I simultaneously become more sure they're real and less sure what the hell they are. Accurate. Uh, that's, that is largely where I'm at of like, I, out of everything in the phenomenon, I think ghosts are genuinely the thing I, me- I most firmly believe in. Um, I, I just, like this 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 book in particular i am just not and don't the 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 actual like the actual definition for me of the the difference between a poltergeist and a ghost is largely a ghost to me seems like a direct continuation of a dead person's consciousness now disincarnate whereas a poltergeist i define that as just any form of antagonistic bodiless entity that originates from inside someone mm-hmm. um and uh for this this book in particular operating under that definition i am not fully convinced that this was a ghost and part of me leans more towards this was a poltergeist it may have been a ghost at one point i think by the end it was a poltergeist you know it's interesting um just thinking about uh, back to skinwalkers of the Pentagon. Yeah. A lot of the people who experience hitchhiker effects, effects experienced uh, what were described as poltergeist-like phenomenon in their house. Yeah. So I guess it really comes down to, I mean, when you can't know the source, and I mean really, truly know what the source is, for you in the house, 
I guess, does it matter that your house is on fire? If it, it doesn't matter to you if your house is already on fire, if it was started by a book of matches or an electrical socket? Correct. No, no I agree. It, does, it doesn't matter. That's why, ultimately, I think the blanket term ghost is a good kind of coverall, unless you had the time or the, 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 the care to dive deeper and go a little bit further into what might be the cause. Right. And, and even then, like, let's say, yeah, the ghost manifests and says, hey, I'm the ghost of Steve. I was dead and now I'm not. And now I'm a disembodied consciousness. Great. You told me that. Do I now believe that you're actually a ghost? Why should I? I have no reason to believe that you'll tell me the truth. I mean, especially if we look at this through a John Keel's kind of frame of mind where everything that is everything that is human and everything that isn't human is lying constantly all the time. Um, yeah, no, it comes back to because... <laughs> We have no conception of what that other world may look like. We can never really be sure of what we're ever dealing with. Yeah. No, in in uh, regarding to paranormal entities. Unfortunately, the truth, the, the fact of the matter is all of these ghosts, poltergeist activity, all of these things, they could be aliens. Well, and taking it a step further. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you really want to drive yourself crazy with it, taking a step further, all of your perceptions come from this disembodied uh, thought in that's at the back of who you are. It's yep. the one observing everything, right? And ultimately, it's we're constructing reality based off of the inputs we receive. Well, <laughs> much like I would have, you know, a ghost saying, I am a ghost, and I truly have no reason to actually fully believe that, I have genuinely no reason to truly believe that for example, Rory and Jay are real. What I have is I think I can see the entity, the I have the vessels for those modes of consciousness. I can communicate with them and feel like I'm talking with another, but they could be thought projections into physical reality that I made because I needed friends. Because ultimately, we're always on the inside looking out uh, and just having to kind of figure out what's going on around us based off I mean, a very limited view of reality, uh, you get to a point where it's difficult to be sure that anything is real, which I, which is probably where people go crazy with a topic like this. Yeah. 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 You can't, you can't swim too deep in the ocean. You'll fall out of the sky. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you. Uh, that is from a thing I wrote in high school, actually. That was when I was like 14, I wrote that in something. Well, go and congratulate 14-year-old you. <laughs> All right. Uh, did we answer that one? I think we answered that as thoroughly as we can at this point in time. So All are right. we ready for the about the author? Yeah. I am, personally. Let's do it. All right. So uh, it's actually a pretty short one because she um, was smart enough to keep a lot of information about her off of the internet. So Alex Matsuo is a paranormal researcher, singer, and author. She holds an M.A. in theater from the San Diego State University. She's the founder of the Association of Paranormal Study and runs The Spooky Stuff, a blog and YouTube channel documenting her paranormal investigations and adjacent topics. She has been featured on Haunted Hospitals, Travel Channel's Most Terrifying Places in America, and has appeared in many podcasts. Uh, she hosts The Spooky Stuff podcast as well as the Informal Paranormal podcast. She's the author of five books on the paranormal, including this one and A Brave Mortal's Guide to Ghost Hunting, The Haunting of the 10th Avenue Theater, More Than Ghosts, A Guide to Working Residential Cases in the Paranormal Field, 
and The Haunted Actor. She currently lives in Arlington, Virginia, and she is a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution via her ancestor, Joseph Toller. She has appeared as a student in the short film Battle Hero Absolute, and she also runs classes teaching theater to children. And as one last note, she is going to be joining us on the next edition of Midnight Chats, which should be fun. I'm looking forward to talking to her about uh, about her experiences here. Yeah, and uh, just as another plug for her that I'm sure we'll talk about in the interview, but she does have another book coming out this fall <gasps> called The Hamptonville Hauntings. I know nothing else other than I'm staring at the picture. Ghosts of the Trivet Clinic. Well, it's actually a fascinating story. See, um, it's a haunting that happened in a place called Hampton. Ville. Hamptonville. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah, that's all I know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of episode 32. 32. Episode 32 of Noctivigan. Ah, and with that, we will move into housekeeping. 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 So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe and rate on whatever streaming platform it is that you're listening to us on and like i said if it's spotify or apple please leave us a review because it really does help us we have to beat the algorithm yeah somehow somehow god damn the algorithm (laughs) but if you want to reach out to us with any book requests any kind of suggestions feedback anything at all you can do that via email noctificantpodcast at gmail.com and if you want to follow us on social media you can do that at Noctivigant Pod on Twitter, and I'm at Mix Rory Wicks. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias, including but not limited to Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast. Reddit, Noctivigant Podcast. Tumblr, Noctivigant Podcast. As you can see, there is a theme, but I think that's it. Unless you want to follow me on TikTok, that's at Mix Rory Wicks as well. You and your ticks and your talks. Hey, I've actually been posting videos on there. Not as many as most creators, but like, I don't know, once every week or so, I do something. I'm not giving these people my AO3. <laughs> yeah, it's probably for the best. Y- yeah. <laughs> well, we'll save that for the 100 episode special. No. Oh, yeah. No, oh, they're yeah. not, Nick. We'll do a Nick. live reading. Nick, they're not. <laughs> Maybe we'll do one of yours on the, on the show. What? <laughs> Nothing. Anyway, no. so no. Uh, is that it? Any final thoughts? I don't know. I, I like the book. It was a good book. Go yes. on and buy it. Uh, also, I got to say, uh, if you're looking for a very authentic first-person view of what it's like to be in a terrible accident and go through the trauma center of a hospital, uh, I can attest that this is it. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of the images in here were very real. Yeah. 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 I, I, I haven't gone through the same kind of stay that you did in a trauma center, but I've I've been in and out of places like that, and I can say that even for me, it, it got to me. Yeah. Spe- yeah. All right, lead us out of here, Jay. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. Stay safe out there. And watch out for cars. Seriously, watch out yeah, for cars. Yeah, actually, for real, though, they're still roads. Even it. Watch out for cars. Remember, it's not look both ways once, it's look both ways twice, and then you cross. Head on a swivel. Yes.
So one of the things about Alex's early life that I skipped over um, in, for the sake of the page count was the fact that she at one point willingly became a Christian mime. That is a mime that uses the art of mimery to preach the gospel. And it is hands down my favorite thing about her. 